1: From the
2: most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
3: It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. We had Greg here on the show in studio yesterday. If you missed that, we put some of it on YouTube. You can find that. You can also go to our podcast and listen to the whole thing. It was really fun. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. For all of that information, you can also follow us on social media, at Guy show, on Twitter and Instagram. The podcast is free, on demand, Every day, we air live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, and that's when we really encourage you to listen if you can. Broadcasting here from New York City, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we have a lineup for you. Listen to this. Dagan McDowell on the economy, on energy. She's coming up here in studio later this hour. I get a sense that she might be uh, en fuego today. We'll see. Dana Perino in studio live coming up in the next hour. Can't wait to see Dana. She was actually at an event that we were at last night. So twice in two days. What a pleasure. Andy McCarthy joining us by phone on crime on the Danchenko acquittal in that John Durham investigation trial. We mentioned that breaking news yesterday. Analysis from Andy coming up. And then Bill Malugin from the border. There are a number of news stories on the border crisis that we will walk through with Bill coming up. In our final hour, plus, what a night last night for producer Christine. There are stories, there are allegations, rumors are flying. We'll get to the bottom of it with some eyewitnesses at the very end of the show in our home stretch. As we begin, I was debating where to start, and I was tempted to play some audio, and I will, From the Florida Senate debate last night, Marco Rubio and Val Demings, Rubio, the incumbent Republican, Demings, a 100 percent Pelosi drone in the House who now wants to be in the Senate. Rubio seems to be in control of that race, not firmly, but well enough. And I think he solidified his standing last night. Demings was very harsh on him. She got a couple of her shots in. The moderators were Not that subtle about who they were rooting for. Spoiler alert, the Democrat, as usual. These are journalists we're talking about. But Rubio absolutely more than held his own. He looked at ease. He looked like an experienced two-term senator who was ready and prepared. And we'll play you some of the sound. There was one moment where I think he just absolutely crushed her. Even I was like, oh, damn, that's going to leave a mark. But before we get to that, I want to actually start in Arizona. I saw that just a short while ago, Glenn Youngkin... The governor of Virginia was campaigning in Arizona on behalf of Carrie Lake, who is the Republican nominee for governor out there. And let me just say, before I go any further, I'm not a Carrie Lake stan. I think the way that she got herself the nomination is something that I don't like. That path through election denial and all of the conspiracy mongering about Arizona and stolen elections back in 2020, I think that she's full of it. It's not true. It is certainly not proven in court they had opportunities to do it. They couldn't. Now, and I'm just going to period, end of sentence, not a fan for that reason. I'm also an objective, I hope, somewhat objective, or at least clear-minded, clear-thinking observer of politics. And I will say, number one, she's actually a good candidate. When you watch the way that she presents herself, the way that she answers questions, She was a longtime journalist herself, TV journalist, so she's attractive. She, I think, has a a very smooth delivery, a great voice. She has thought through some of these issues and responses inside and out. And she has a way of dressing down the press that is often quite effective. When she is challenged by media members with BS or leading questions or pointed questions that are tendentious or ideological She lets them have it, not in a dumb way, but a pretty smart, prepared way. I've seen this on a number of issues, including the way that she deflects away from the election denial, where she goes through. I saw the clip recently and points out all the election denial done by Democrats and leftists through the years when Republicans win. And it is a long list. Two wrongs don't make a right. Doesn't make me say what she's done is acceptable or defensible in my mind. But the lady makes a point. Freaking out about Kerry Lake and her election denial, but crickets from these same people on Stacey Abrams, Hillary Clinton. I had actually forgotten some of the crazy stuff Hillary had said. And Kerry Lake, like, has a binder of this. She's like, all right, bring me the file. And she just starts reading back to these journalists. Any questions about this, guys? It's pre- I- I'm just saying it's pretty effective. On abortion when she was challenged, she turned that – I think we played the clip on the show. She turned that into a highlight – of her opponent's radicalism on the question, challenging the press to ask her questions about it. And guess what they did? She basically bullied and shamed members of the media into asking Katie Hobbs, the Democrat in the race, tough questions on abortion. And Hobbs has looked like a deer in the headlights a little bit, being challenged on her radicalism. So I can have a low opinion of some of the things about Carrie Lake and how she got the nomination, I think some of it is cynical. I don't know if she really even believes it herself, but that was her track to victory. She won. And now, by the way, the Democrats helped boost her in the primary. Remember that meddling we've been talking about where they were so scared for democracy? And then they pumped millions of dollars and did what they could to help the MAGA extremists actually win nominations. She was one of the beneficiaries of that. And now you're seeing the Democrats looking around with a look of panic on their faces like, oh, wait, Kerry Lake might win the governorship. A couple of polls have her winning, have her leading. It's like, well, be careful what you wish for, Democrats. You thought she'd be the easier one to beat. Maybe, maybe not. But turns out she's a pretty good candidate in a lot of ways with my, you know, strongly held objections already noted. And she seems to be a much better candidate in terms of talent, warmth. Ability to connect with people than Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, who is running scared in this race. I wasn't planning on doing a big Arizona monologue to open, but this news just broke a couple hours ago. It's a story from one of the newspapers down in Arizona. Hobbs is not only refusing to debate Kerry Lake, and she's dressing this up as sort of like on principle. Oh, she's an election denier. So I won't debate her. I assume she would appear on stage with Hillary Clinton. I assume she would appear on stage with Stacey Abrams if she hasn't done those things already. But she won't. She's using that as the excuse to refuse to debate her general election opponent. And then she's got literature and ads being like, oh, yeah, I'm a brave, tough fighter. All right, I'm fearless. That was one of the words. Fearless in some of her materials. Yeah, so fearless that she wouldn't debate in the Democratic primary. Because she was the front runner, couldn't be bothered to debate fellow Democrats, and then won't debate her Republican opponent in the general election, to whom she very well might lose. So, at an interview that she just recently did, apparently the media was held off in a separate room, so she won't debate. And then this happened. This is from a journalist out there, Robert Anglin. Reporters were held in a room at Arizona's largest journalism school of all places, this was Tuesday, yesterday, and prevented from questioning gubernatorial candidate Katie Hobbs who left in a freight elevator from the Cronkite School at Arizona State. So she won't debate her opponent, and then she was trying to avoid, after this interview that she did, further questions from the media, so she like slipped out the back door in a freight elevator while journalists were like held in a cage, basically, at the journalism school at Arizona State. What a look for this woman, Katie Hobbs, who wants to be governor of the state. It's pretty extraordinary. One of the questions she was asked during that interview was about schools. Listen to her response. Cut 25.
4: The current governor says that kids are trapped in failing schools. It's his quote, it's time to free these families. Does he have a point?
0: There are always going to be kids who are stuck in these schools. And until we invest in those schools and make sure that every student, no matter where they live, gets quality public education, we're going to have the same issue. This voucher system does not fix that at all.
3: Doug Ducey is in favor of school choice. So is Carrie Lake. I agree with her on that. He's championing, Ducey is, school choice in that state. And, of course, Katie Hobbs is against it, dead set against it for the teachers' unions for trapping kids in failing schools and not giving parents an opportunity to send their kids elsewhere the way that her parents did. Katie Hobbs went to private school because she was rich enough to do it. But underprivileged people who can't afford it, she wants them stuck in those schools. And she literally said, did you catch that quote? There are always going to be kids who are stuck in these schools. She concedes the point. And her platform apparently is, and let's keep them stuck there and throw a lot more money at those schools, and that'll solve things because, of course, it's worked out so well in places like California. Just shrugging. There is always going to be kids stuck in these schools. She is afraid to answer questions. She is terrified of debating Carrie Lake, and I think we're seeing why. I think Carrie Lake, and I will again parenthetically say, not a fan here, but having watched this race, I feel confident in saying that Kerry Lake would absolutely eat Katie Hobbs alive in a debate. She knows it, and she's trying to basement this election. She's trying to Biden the thing. Will the people of Arizona be impressed by that? Will they reward her for that? Now, maybe someone who wishes she could have skipped some of the debate last night was Val Demings against Marco Rubio down in Florida. He gave a good answer on abortion. Demings and the moderators were all teaming up on him, and and he flipped it on Demings. She said it was a lie. No, I don't support abortion through birth. The problem is she voted for it. She can say, no, my position is actually something different. Well, when you vote for a bill, that's what you support. You can't run away from your own vote. So Rubio made that point, even though she was accusing him of lying. Nope, it's a matter of congressional record, madam. You voted for this insane Pelosi bill. If it's not your position, don't vote for it. But she did because she needs all those democrat donor dollars to flow down to florida on the issue of so-called voter suppression rubio put on a clinic superb answer cut 18.
0: it's never been easier to vote in florida you can now vote by mail for any reason you can vote for example 10 days before the election you can vote on election day in georgia which they claimed to be the place that was suppressing all the votes you had record african-american voter turnout To compare what's happening now to the Jim Crow era where people were literally murdered, where people were forced to take poll taxes and pay poll taxes and literacy tests, what are we talking about here? We're talking about this. We're talking about, number one, when you go vote, you show an ID. I have been a Hispanic man my entire life. I'm a minority. I've never felt like producing an ID disadvantages my ability to vote. Everyone has an ID. You can't even check into a hotel. You can't buy Sudafed at Walgreens without an ID. That's number one. Number two is you can't collect a bunch of ballots. Harvesting of ballots, cars showing up with tons of ballots sitting in the trunk of a car, things like that, that they want to force down the throat of every state in the country. We don't need that federal law imposed on every state. Florida has very good election laws and other states have very good election laws.
3: Very well said. Extremely well laid out. And it was interesting. A question was asked whether the candidates would accept the result of the 2022 election. Val Demings deflected. She, like, pivoted. She's like, well, let me start with something else. And she launched into a pre-memorized little soliloquy. She didn't end up answering that question. Maybe that was an oversight. Maybe she was so focused on getting to, like, the memorized talking points that she forgot to actually respond to the question. But that's the standard bearer of the Democrats down in Florida immediately not answering a question about whether she will accept The outcome of the election. And by the way, it looks likely that the outcome will be a bad one for her. In another soundbite, and this is the one I'll leave you with from the Florida debate last night. Demings was trying to get sarcastic, trying to take a shot at Rubio about national security and foreign policy and sort of uh, calling him a faux expert on these things or playing an expert on it. And she was pretending like this was about a presidential campaign that Rubio might have in mind in the future And his response was just perfect and rough for her. Cut 20. Listen to this back and forth.
5: Look, the senator can play um, national security expert all he wants. I know he needs that for his next presidential
0: run. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what she means by play national security expert. I'm the vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee and was the previous chairman of it, so it's actually my job. But... (laughs)
3: Like, oh, he's playing a national security expert. He's like, well, vice chairman of the intelligence committee, former chairman, being an expert on this stuff is literally my job. She's just walked right into that one. Oh, so, I mean, you know, she's this tough talking sheriff lady. That's the way that she's been presenting herself in TV ads down there. She doesn't take any nonsense off of, off of anyone, not Val Demings. And all night long, Rubio's like, Congresswoman, because she's calling herself a, a cop, which she was. He's like, she's a congresswoman. Congresswoman Demings votes for Biden and Pelosi 100% of the time. And some of that swagger didn't seem so confident when he was actually there to push back. And at times she just, I mean, it was just lopsided. And I think, honestly, in Arizona, Lake versus Hobbs would be even worse, which is why Hobbs is running scared and won't do it. She's getting taunted by Carrie Lake. I saw her like Dr. Seussing it the other day, taunting Hobbs. I will debate you in a bar. I will debate you in a car. And Katie Hobbs doesn't want to take those questions, nor questions from a pack of reporters, apparently, held at the journalism school in like a windowless room as she escaped through a freight elevator. Which of these candidates is a threat to democracy? What's what's the metric here for that? When we come back, I want to turn back to Florida. The other guy running down there, Ron DeSantis, you haven't heard much about him recently, have you? I wonder why that is. We'll explore briefly when we return on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
4: Today, I'm happy to report that starting at 11 a.m., the causeway will be reopened for the citizens of Lee County. We have had, um, after search and rescue and some of those things were going, there was uh, talk about how do we get more people back onto Sanibel. We were helicoptering in, power people, boating people in. But at the end of the day, you really need to make it work. You need to be able to get people over there on vehicles. And so we worked with um, FDOT to develop a plan and implement a plan to make the temporary repairs necessary to the Sanibel Causeway to get people back over there.
3: I'm Guy Benson. That was Governor Ron DeSantis earlier today announcing that that Sanibel Causeway wiped out in many ways during Hurricane Ian is now at least temporarily back open with these fixes. A week ahead of schedule. It's really impressive. It's welcome news to the people down there who need that access. They were able to get it open for some emergency vehicles once, which were desperately needed. And now it's back open for just sort of average people to drive across in incredible time. Before the break, I said, it's been odd not to hear that much about Ron DeSantis recently. I think the reason is obvious. He's doing his job and he's doing it well. The media hates him. They've been out to get him from day one. They go crazy over everything he says. They're scared of him politically. They're worried he might be president one day. They wanted desperately in some quarters to make Ian his Katrina. Not Biden's Katrina, right? Bush had Katrina where they ignored the state and local officials. It was all about Bush. They didn't want to make this Katrina for Biden. No, no, it was going to be the Republican governor, of course. If things were going badly, if it were being mismanaged... If he weren't doing the job well, you'd be hearing all about it because they are eager for that plot line. They don't have that plot line because he's denying it to them through competence, which is why you're not hearing much at all about Ron DeSantis. And I suspect he's very happy about that development heading into the election and on behalf of the people of Florida affected by the hurricane.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: Back here in New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. And with me here at the table is our friend and colleague, Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst at Fox Business Network, also a correspondent for Fox News Channel. You see her everywhere. Mornings with Maria, The Five, this week, all week, 5 p.m. hour on FBN. She's anchoring that show. And it's great to see you, Dagan.
6: Great to see you. A real friend, too. Real friend out of work.
3: Oh, yeah. No, we like Hangout now. Yeah. In real life. No, we
6: went on to vacation. Have we even talked on the radio since we, we went on vacation together in Greece? <laughs> we did for Kennedy's
3: birthday. Yes. It was so fun.
6: And so we know each other very, very well.
3: We do, which is why I'm so excited to okay. have you on this show about this issue today. I saw, I guess the press release went out yesterday that President Biden was going to address gas prices and oil prices today. So oh, this will be good. And then I said, oh, We've got Dagan tomorrow. I'm like, even better. So let's play a few sound bites from the president. This is. A couple hours ago at the White House, he's back to Putin, cut 39.
0: When the price of gas goes up, other expenses get cut. That's why I have been doing everything in my power to reduce gas prices since Putin's invasion of Ukraine caused these, price hikes to, these prices to spike and rattle international oil markets.
3: Beyond that, he said he needed to debunk some myths about what's going on. Just listen to cut 40, then we'll react.
0: We need to responsibly increase American oil production without delaying or deferring our transition to clean energy. Let me uh, let's debunk some myths here. My administration has not stopped or slowed U.S. oil production.
3: Has not stopped or slowed U.S. oil production. That's a myth, he says. Dagan?
6: Um, I'm furious. That's just a lie. This administration before when he was on the campaign trail, he said in a debate, we will transition away from the oil industry and. Not only have the people in his administration talked the same talk, Brian Deese, his economic advisor, said earlier this year, the only viable path to energy independence for the American economy is to reduce the energy intensity of our economy overall and reduce it to zero and get ourselves into a position where we're no longer reliant on fossil fuels. They have made this promise. They've not only talked it, they've walked it. This administration, federal oil leases slowed to the lowest level so far under this administration than any other administration since World War II. That wasn't enough to put the hammer down on oil companies. They also, its Interior Department, started conducting additional climate reviews on five leases, oil and gas lease sales, that were held during the Trump administration, so they went and froze those that happened even before Joe Biden took office. They have made clear to the oil industry, we're at war with you. Yeah, we're gonna put you we out of business. Wa- Here, I, I just want to read you this quote because any time that Ro Khanna, Congressman, granted he doesn't work in the Biden administration, this is what he said to the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth, an American oil company last year: "Are you embarrassed?" As an American company, that your production, meaning oil, is going up while your European counterparts are going down. And Mike Orr said, we're raising production to meet global demand. And he said, are you going to sit here and promise that you're going to lower your production? So, hmm. So what does that mean? They want us what to be Putin's puppet. They want us to be flat on our our backs, or rather, like bending on on bended knee in front of Saudi Arabia. They have done nothing to support our energy sector, and and, and now they're castigating these energy companies, saying you need to stop p- um, buying back stock and paying dividends. Not yeah, while produce. a war is raging.
3: You need to produce right now a lot of stuff. Stop being greedy. Also, we hate you. We're going to put you out of business. Don't produce. Actually, now you must produce and then we're going to kill your industry. Here's Biden. And this is an RNC flashback that they put out on Twitter and social media right after Biden spoke today. Underscoring what you just pointed out, this is Biden in his own words making promises as a candidate for president of the United States. Cut 41.
0: No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill.
3: Period. That's what he said. And now he's trying to be like, oh, no, we're not. We're not hostile to production. We, it's the oil industry, and, and we have not done one single thing against this. And it's just obviously untrue.
6: I'm going to quote our mutual friend, Katie Pavlich: The pain is the point. That's why you, they wanted energy prices to go up, to record highs, which they did. Gasoline was north – national average was north of $5 a gallon. That's why because that's the only way that you can make these green energy alternatives, particularly electric vehicles, uh, financially viable is by making fossil fuels extremely expensive because these electric vehicles are expensive. Charging an electric vehicle is expensive. That's how you force people to buy electric vehicles. Here's what they've also done just recently recently to the energy sector in the Inflation Reduction Act, and it pains me to use the phrase that they concocted, which is just horse manure, but they included it was a new corporate minimum tax, but then an additional $12 billion tax on crude oil and petroleum products and a new natural gas tax. Natural gas, by the way, is a green form of energy. And how are you going to power all of these electric vehicles unless you have the natural gas to run the power plants because they got, they got rid of coal and nuclear has been shut down here, there, and everywhere. The... I, I don't – I this is their problem. This was a problem of their making, and th- there's more to come. Diesel, there's going to be skyrocketing energy prices for winter heating in the northeast. Diesel inventories right now in mid-October – are the lowest for mid October than when, than when Harry Truman was president. So it's been, it's about 70 years yeah, ago. Decades. And early, speaking of decades, 50s.
3: the band aid that he's trying to slap up until November 9th, basically, is this the strategic reserve of petroleum, uh, which is meant for natural disasters and war. He's been drawing it down at a crazy clip to try to just sort of hold down the pain at the pump just a little bit for obviously political reasons. And you can call that reckless. It's at its lowest level now in about 40 years, the strategic reserve. The other thing that I think is really important to point out is when Trump was president, the Republicans and the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. they were trying to refill the strategic reserve back when oil was $23 a a barrel and – Democrats blocked it and bragged about blocking it because for their green bona fides, they're like, oh, these Republicans want to bail – this is what they call it, bail out the oil industry by buying all of this uh, all of this oil at this price, and the Democrats blocked it. They were thrilled at the time. There are tweets from Chuck Schumer and quotes from Schumer celebrating the fact that they didn't do this, and now the Democrats are looking around and saying, oh, we're going to try to start refilling that reserve when oil comes down to $70 a gallon. I mean it's just amazing to watch these progressives at work where it's just kind of like they never watch any further than two feet in front of their faces for political reasons, and then it just descends into incoherence and failure.
6: They have a fundamental misunderstanding as being kind. They don't know jack all about the way that our energy economy works and the way that fuel moves around not only the United States but the world. Our energy dominance was power and prosperity for this country. Why do you think Putin invaded Ukraine? Because oil prices went up, because Biden and company started going to war with our energy sector, and he saw it coming. I said it the day that he was inaugurated. I said, you were reducing our power and prosperity, and tyrants that rely on oil riches will – go to war and they will they will have us under their fist and that's exactly what's happened it doesn't take somebody with a a petroleum engineer or the CEO <laughs> of an oil company to understand just the basic fundamentals and i guarantee you he didn't take he wouldn't answer the question about this but something that's been floated is the administration and there's some division within the administration they floated the idea of either limiting or banning our uh, distillate exports, our refined product exports. So we, the oil companies and the refiners will not be allowed to export potentially uh, fuel, gasoline, diesel to other countries because they, they're trying to lower prices. That will result in – because, again, that's not how it works. The Northeast has fuel imported – from overseas, because it's so, there are not enough tankers. Essentially, Jones Act tankers, which have to be flagged and operated just just within the U.S., there are not enough tankers to get enough fuel from the Gulf Coast to the Northeast. If you cut off the imports that the Northeast gets of fuel from other places, so we're looking at if they do that. And he didn't talk about it today. He wouldn't answer our question. If they do that, you will have shortages. Of fuel in the northeast and the west, it will be a disaster. But don't underestimate them. If there's a disaster that they can um, <laughs> <laughs> that they can unleash with a bad policy decision, the, it, it'll happen.
3: Especially if they feel like there might be some fleeting, transitory, like ephemeral political advantage for like two seconds, they might just desperately lurch over in that direction, even if it ends up being. Oh, and
6: I love I love him going after small business owners when. When he talks about – when he castigates and tries to embarrass uh, service station owners, gas station owners, mm-hmm. they're, the lo- vast majority are owned by independent operators. They're not owned like a small, small sliver.
0: Yes, it's
3: mom and pop, and like they're all getting together in some right. s- conspiracy to raise prices. It's just, it's just illiterate is what this is. Dagan McDowell, relatedly, because we hear mm-hmm. constant deflections, blame shift – all the things that are hurting Americans—it's not—it's our—it's not our fault. It's Putin. It's the greed of oil companies. It's these myths from these Republicans. Don't believe anything that they're telling you. Big meat, right? All, all, all the things that they I do. I like big
6: meat, big oil, big meat, big pharma. That all, was last year, even.
3: They also want to blame everything but big spending on inflation, and it's funny to see. I think this is the first time I've seen an elected democrat who voted for the giant so-called rescue plan 2 trillion dollars first thing they did come into office the first thing they did was an insane spending bill on top of all the stuff that they had already done under the previous administration a brand new hugely wasteful rescue plan on covid supposedly that was just a you know a christmas tree of nonsense you had democratic economists warning at the time loudly don't do this. It's a mistake. It's inflation. Steve Ratner, Larry Summers, we've quoted them. Now, finally, here's an elected Democrat admitting, well, maybe that was a mistake after all. Cut 32 Senator Mark Warner of Virginia on Bloomberg.
0: Do you have any regrets at all about the American Rescue Plan? Because the Fed may be too late, but Congress was pretty early with a lot of stimulus.
3: Was there too much in the American Rescue Plan on a relative basis? Absolutely. Absolutely, says Warner. Okay. Okay. You get half a clap for candor, how like a year and a half delayed. You voted for it, man. You all vote. Every single Democrat voted for this thing.
6: And Well, he's right. I love how and even the New York Times had the. Stones to write this headline about how Democrats are having trouble defending that spending package. Well, they're not even that, talking that about saved it. Save the economy. Save the economy. Inflation was at one point four percent in December of twenty twenty, and the economy was growing at a four and a half percent clip. It didn't need saving. It didn't need two trillion dollars. I, I will. Th- and, and by the, I, the way, the,
3: the headline that you're talking about, I thought was very revealing. They're like, the, I'm paraphrasing. It was like. uh The Democrats spent $1.9 trillion, and on the campaign trail, they won't mention it.
6: Right. They know
3: why. It's like a guilty conscience.
6: Here's why it's that package, and Mark Warner, yeah, you're lucky to be from Virginia. Um, (laughs) Maybe you just got some good sense by accident from the water. I'm guessing.
3: Except he voted the way that he voted. So looking back and saying like, oh gosh, absolutely it was too much. But at the time when his vote mattered, he did what he
6: did. Why why it, why it matters now is because that bill is still inflationary, because the money yes. went to the states, and the states are using it to do what Gavin Newsom sent in inflation relief checks to people. You don't alleviate inflation by giving them money to yeah. spend that stimulus. stimulus. So into the that's economy. happening all over the country. <laughs> it's like a, a more, about half the states have sent some sort of check or relief to voters at a time when inflation is being fought by the Federal Reserve, and that's why we have 20-year high mortgage rates.
3: Now. A couple minutes left here, Dagan. I want to get to this. Jeff Bezos tweeting earlier it's time to batten down the hatches. Big, painful recession coming. I know technically we're already in one, but like a, a serious recession coming. I, I saw Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal had their surveys of economists agreeing. Uh, pain is coming because the Fed's going to have to basically strangle this economy because of inflation.
6: It is strangling it. Today you had the 10-year Treasury yield top in 4.1% for the first time in 14 years, the two-year Treasury at a 15-year high. Here's what it does to the housing market. I did this for you, Guy. You got a million-dollar loan at 2.5% interest. That If rates go to 7% on mortgages, which is about where they are, You're going to own this. The same payment is on a six hundred and sixty thousand dollar mortgage. So at two and a half, you could have afforded a million dollar loan. Now you can only afford a six hundred and sixty thousand dollar loan. That's and that's at inflated prices. That's how much prices have to come down. That's how much. So look out below any part of the economy that is leveraged because rates are skyrocketing is going to be in a deep, protracted, nasty recession.
3: And yet, one minute less than a minute. The president said days ago, eating ice cream, the U.S. economy is strong as hell.
6: He's out of his mind. He doesn't know. Again, pooping all over this country. That's it's just it's just a lie. Maybe he had brain freeze from, <laughs> from, the ice cream. from the
3: ice cream. Dagan McDowell, anchor analyst, Fox Business Network, all over Fox News as well. Catch her at 5 p.m., You can DVR her on TV. Listen to us on the radio, then go watch her on the FBN show. i put
6: makeup on before I do the TV. (laughs) Very good. Sorry, Guy. It's great great to see you. (laughs) Thank you. You too.
3: See you next time. And we'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative
2: talk. Guy Benson Show.
3: It is the Guy Benson Show. Coming up in the next hour, Dana Perino, Andy McCarthy, Bill Malugin in our final hour. Looking at some polling just in the last two days and following some of these big Senate races. And one that has been on my radar. Kind of a tough slog so far, but getting better. Out in Arizona, we talked about the governor's race to start today's show. New poll out that I saw today. Trafalgar has Blake Masters within one point. He's down one. Now, Is that an outlier? Do the other polls have it three or four? Yes. Trafalgar has some success, though, in being kind of like a a cutting-edge leader in trends. So I would not discount that poll. And even if it's a a one- to three-point race, that's margin of error. comes down to turnout. Blake Masters is gaining on Mark Kelly. He did well in that debate. Kelly's a rubber stamp for Joe Biden all the time. That is a winnable race, I think, for the Republicans still. And then a new poll out of Pennsylvania. I'm still waiting to see a poll where Dr. Oz is actually ahead, but this one has him down two. An AARP poll, high-quality poll, that is a margin-of-error statistical tie. I think we know why the campaign over on the Fetterman side is nervous. And they've got all this crazy stuff they're saying. Over in Fetterman World. They're bringing Biden in tomorrow. Good luck with that. As Dr. Oz trying to pull ahead, well, even first, then maybe ahead. Winnable race in Pennsylvania, also in Arizona, on top of the other tight ones, Georgia, et cetera. Another hour coming up, Guy Benson Show.
2: the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show
3: it's a brand new hour here on the guy benson show from new york city i'm guy benson thank you for listening our website here at the program as always guybensonshow.com that podcast available on demand for free every day when the show is over, just after 6 p.m. Eastern time. We do encourage you to listen between 3 and 6 p.m. live as we air. But anything that you miss is right there at the website, GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us, social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm on Gutfeld tonight, part of that wild circus. It should be fun right at 11 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. You could set your DVR if it's a little bit on the late side for you. We have Dana Perino coming up in studio, live, in just minutes. Before we get to Dana, I do want to play a soundbite that I saw earlier today. We talked this week about the gubernatorial debate in Georgia between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Kemp seems to have a pretty solid lead in that race. Stacey Abrams did an interview this morning on MSNBC, where I guess she is obviously preaching to the choir over at that network. And she was asked a question by one of the hosts who said, look, you're focusing on abortion. You kept bringing up abortion. That's obviously an important issue for a lot of voters. But overall, it seems like what people are really focused on is the cost of living, on prices, on gas, on food. How are you going to try to win over those people? And Stacey Abrams decided that she was going to try to fuse these two topics together. Inflation, the number one issue in America, and abortion, the obsession of Democrats like her who are talking about it incessantly, the result to me is one of the more ghastly things I've ever heard from an American political candidate. Here was Stacey Abrams earlier in Cut 23.
7: Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are, it's it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out.
3: She is arguing that a way that families can reduce the pain of inflation is by aborting more of their children. That's the argument. Having children, she says, is why you're worried about your price for gas. See, if you were just childless or maybe, you know, if Billy had never been born, you wouldn't have one more mouth to feed and therefore the inflation problem wouldn't be quite so bad for you. So maybe, hey, second look at abortion. What a ghoulish thing to say. This is why I try to draw a distinction between pro-abortion and pro-choice. There are people in this audience, in this country, who are pro-choice and say sometimes under certain circumstances, this is a very difficult decision that should be left to a woman, especially earlier on in the pregnancy. It's a very difficult choice. It's a tragic one, but women should have that choice at least for X number of months. That's kind of a mainstream pro-choice position. I fall, of course, much more on the pro-life end of the spectrum. The pro-abortion argument is, hey, abortion can be a positive good, and you're going to ask me about the inflation that's racking the country? You're going to ask me about the economy that's really tough and could get a lot worse? Well, let me bring it back to abortion and shoehorn that into the topic by saying you can alleviate some of your economic stress by having fewer people. Like someone who's dead is less of an economic burden. It is cheaper to be dead than alive. That's true. To offer that as your answer, your solution, to say that you cannot de-link the issues of abortion and inflation is crazy. That is an extremely creepy way to go about thinking about this, let alone saying it out loud. Like Stacey Abrams and the Democrats' inflation solution is more abortion. Kind of seems like more abortion is their solution and their talking point on everything. They don't want to really talk about their own positions, their own stances on the issue, which are increasingly radical. But occasionally they just let it slip. They can't avoid it or deflect or slip away from the questions anymore. This one wasn't even really a tough, hey, why do you support no limits on abortion question? This was how are you going to convince people most concerned about inflation to vote for you? And she said, well, because abortion. People are concerned about inflation. Because they have children. And so if those kids didn't exist, if they were just gone, they could maybe weather the storm better. That, of course, number one, is not a solution to the problem. And number two, the way that that's being set up to me is just grotesque. Abortion as a cost savings measure. Whether you agree or disagree on the overall question and the ethical dilemma or the moral weight of an abortion or the issue of abortion, I think trying to make it a cost-saving measure to your family or to society writ large. We've heard this from other sort of Malthusians as well. Too many people out there, too much burden on society. Others might be better off, and collectively, the family or the country and the world might be better off with fewer people alive. That just turns my stomach as a way to process either one of these issues, and she brings them together in this I think, appalling talking point. And there is a very clear choice in the state of Georgia. That's one of the most religious states in the country, and that's the answer that she gave. I can't imagine that they focus grouped or poll tested that one. I don't think that's the way that they want to message, really, on either of those two issues. But leave it to Stacey to come up with that response. The way that she did, I'm trying to figure out why she earned the reputation of being some great rising star political candidate. She lost in a blue wave year, then denied that election, has been lying about stuff ever since, and she keeps putting her foot in her mouth over and over again, calling that state the worst one to live in in the country. The photo op with all the masked kids while she's there smiling, barefaced. Maybe looking around at those kids forced to wear masks around and saying, well, I wonder if these kids, a few of them might be better off not with us. Their families could save some money that way. What a twisted way to look at the world, honestly. Just wanted to flag that one for you. Didn't want to let that one just slide on past. Couldn't resist commenting. And this is not me impugning motives or projecting some sort of unfair interpretation onto her. These are... Her words, we played them for you. And with that, we will step aside. We will return with Dana Perino joining us in studio on the other side of this break.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Joining me now here in studio is Dana Perino, Hello. co-anchor of America's Newsroom, Hello. co-host of The Five, New York Times bestselling author,
8: <laughs> everything will be okay,
3: <laughs> now in paperback. And let's see, we had Greg here yesterday, we had Jesse Tarloff here yesterday, so now we have like 60% of The Five yeah. in the span of two days here on the show in studio. It's great to see I you. Gotta get
8: Jesse Waters in here.
3: Uh, I agree. Hear that, Jesse?
8: Yeah, Jesse.
3: I know he's super busy with his two shows, but guess who else has two shows? You. Guess who else has two shows? Greg. Yeah. They, they managed to pull it off. Hello. I'm just saying. Let's clip that and send it to Jesse. I'm <laughs> just saying. Okay, Dana, I want to start, before we get into some of these specific races, you just said something right before we came back from break. Just a cautionary word to Republicans and conservative voters, I think there's a lot of triumphalism out there. The polling is certainly looking a lot better, but...
8: I know. I've all, basically, don't start measuring the drapes yet for your new offices. Um, the the momentum is clearly on the Republican side and for good reason. It's not manufactured. Um, and even the headlines in the mainstream media is saying, wow, well, look at this. And I think the New York Times poll was shocking to people the other day where they had women, independent women swinging. They were plus 16 for Democrats in August, and in October, they're plus 18 for Republicans. That has really focused the mind. That means that people are not just going to vote um, party line necessarily, right? Independents, you tend to vote with the with the party that you always go with, and even though you say you're an independent, but in this case, it looks like the Republicans are winning them over, and partly is because the other part of that poll showed that on the issues people care about the most, whatever that issue is, the Republicans were winning, mm-hmm. 44 to 36.
3: I mean, that— So
8: I just think that one of the things that the Republicans should think about, and I'm sure some of them are, is that we can't have everybody believe that the Republicans have this thing in the bag because you don't actually have it in the bag until the votes are counted. Right. And if people think, oh, if Republicans are going to win, I don't have to turn out to vote, then you could be caught
3: short. Right. There's almost like this double-edged sword on one hand. On the positive side for the Republicans is sometimes— Stuff can become sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, okay, so-and-so is going to win. I want to be on the winning side. Things do suck right now. Okay, I'm going to vote Republican, too. And there's like a bandwagon effect. But there's this other side that you're warning about, which is if enough people believe that it's a done deal, then they get a little lazy. They don't show up. And then what is expected doesn't just magically materialize. People have to actually go and do the voting.
8: On the other hand, it is also demoralizing if you're a Democrat right now thinking – Why should I even turn out if the Republicans are already going to win? And if the headlines and even the mainstream press are saying Republicans have got the momentum, that could hurt them as well.
3: Let's talk about Georgia for a moment. We played a soundbite in the last segment from Stacey Abrams on MSNBC this morning. She was asked a question about inflation and why it's a much bigger concern to voters than abortion. She decided to try to tie the two issues together and cut 23
7: Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are. it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out.
3: Dana from this Worldview, is there anything abortion can't solve?
7: <laughs>
8: right. Uh, the, the answer to uh, inflation is abortion. Kill more babies. Ugh. That doesn't really um, bode very well. However, let me tell her that at least she's honest because this is what she thinks and she's not alone. Now, I will also say this. We had a woman on Newsroom the other day, an undecided voter, a uh, reverend, uh, and she said she was liked – she is a pro-life person, but – she doesn't think the Republicans do enough to help women once they decide to have that baby and to help take care of that baby. And that she was leaning on towards voting for Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, because she thought that would be he would be more likely to help women like that. That's interesting.
3: Yeah. I mean, and people have their own calculus for all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. I saw Eric Erickson, who's a radio host. He's based down in Georgia, pretty plugged in down there. He said what he's hearing from door knockers and then internal polling that he has access to in Georgia that the top lines are basically tied in that race. I saw one yesterday had 46 46, but the undecided seem to be breaking for Herschel Walker. And you look around and what's happening in the country. It's not that hard to understand Why? especially if you've got someone like Stacey Abrams out there saying things like this and people say, mm-hmm. Ooh, that I'm not
8: like that's your solution. I'm not for that. <laughs>
3: right. And then the Republican ticket starts to look perhaps more mm-hmm. attractive. There was another poll that I referenced in the last hour out of Pennsylvania, Dana, where you've got this really interesting Senate race. Dr. Oz, John Fetterman and Fetterman had the you know 11 point lead or whatever it was over the summer. I never believed that. But Oz was behind and he is just chip, chip, chipping away. AARP poll out yesterday has it a two point race, virtual tie, and the write up said the undecideds in the pool skew Republican. Yeah. So the question is, do those people come home, quote unquote? And if they do, and some of these independents start tipping, and there's enough ticket splitting, I mean, Oz can win this thing. I think.
8: Yes, I've always thought that he could. If inflation and crime are your two big issues, and they should be, if you just like following what's going on and. The, not only in Philly, but then across the state, like what people are going through. And, and and Oz is really focused in on the ravages of fentanyl uh, in the, that state. And he's been on the ground meeting with people who are either addicted or the parents of those who are addicted trying to get their sons and daughters off the streets. I mean, I, I do think that he has been touched by the people that he's has met. and He's pretty tireless. He's in putting in a lot of work. Yes. He, yes, he is. He has really I think that he has earned it. He has worked for it and he has earned it. There is, but there are still those polls that say that you know people just like Fetterman. They like him more than Doctor Oz. But sometimes you want to go with somebody who promises to actually fix the problems, not just likability.
3: And Oz's likability has come up, and Mm -hmm. Fetterman's has come down. Down. He still has a slight edge there. Did you see
8: that Fetterman is running ads on MSNBC asking for donations? That's weird. That started today. That's weird. So I don't know if they have – I don't know what 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 that strategy is. Well, and
3: speaking of strategy and press strategy, you know something about this. Mm -hmm. To have the Fetterman campaign and the candidate's wife, that one reporter called the de facto candidate and then deleted the tweet because they were like, oh, we don't want to call her that. Oops. But you had this reporter at NBC, got the first in-person face-to-face interview with Fetterman. She disclosed to the audience that he seemed to be a little – Confused or, you know, disoriented during the small talk before they mm-hmm. had the closed captioning. I mean, they lowered the boom on this woman. Journalists were mad at her because they're Democrats. Democrats were mad at her because they're Democrats. The campaign decided to keep it alive. Fetterman's wife is like, she should apologize. I found that whole thing... They
8: threatened to sue the station.
3: So weird.
8: Yeah, they th- actually, and his campaign has been very clever and pretty funny, actually, throughout the summer. I when when Fetterman could actually literally could not speak mm-hmm. to the media, they kept his campaign alive through some pretty funny memes and tweets and they that went kind of after stuff. Oz and I, they kept the Cretan. buzz alive. Yep. Yes, they kept the they were very good. So this seemed like a big misstep to me. They should have just let it go because I don't think that Fetterman's health issues are really the thing that people are going to vote on. I do think it's the issues. It might weigh on it, it might tip you over towards Oz if you're kind of if you're really undecided. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there are enough people who have been offended or say they're offended by attacks on Fetterman's health that it's worth continuing to focus on inflation, crime, fentanyl.
3: And if they're like if they want to make the campaign about their own candidate's health and, you know, act aggrieved that anyone's asking questions about it, I think that's a strange choice. When it was cute memes about crudité and New Jersey, you know, that's fine. But if the main issues are crushing inflation and crime and you're still running this other kind of campaign and your candidate is quasi incapacitated, but not completely. And he's, I mean, it's, they are in a very different electoral environment right now than they were a few months ago, and it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like they've fully adapted to it.
8: One thing that's going to be very key for Oz is to try to get his numbers up in Philly or at least to depress Fetterman's numbers in Philly. It matters a huge amount. He's spent a lot of time there. Yep. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Well,
3: I did hear from a friend who knows Philly politics in particular that right. he was hearing that the Fetterman people are very worried about their numbers in Philly proper.
8: Well, that must be why they're running this ad on MSNBC. Yeah,
3: please give us money so we mm-hmm. can – I mean part of the thing is the, the Oz campaign is pointing out that John Fetterman chased down an innocent jet, black jogger with a right. shotgun, right? And like, then his,
8: and his ex- excuses about it are pretty lame.
3: His excuses about a lot of things are pretty <laughs> lame. Uh What's coming up tonight on the five? I mean, you're really close, half an hour away.
8: Half hour away, we're going to talk about um, basically President Biden making very political decisions on uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be our emergency oil reserve, it's not supposed to be for your emergency. You know, political in case emergency. of emergency, pull this handle. It's All not right. the SPR. That's not if It's not to go for your campaign. Um, and also, we'll talk a little bit about the Stacey Abrams as well. What's the, what, what's the fun thing that we have? Hold on. So hold, please. The fun thing we have, oh my gosh, it's pretty funny. Oh, how many young people in America are turning to pot? Okay, that might not sound fun, but we'll make it funny.
3: Well, I have no comment on that, Dana. But we'll have to watch. I
8: hate pot. I never tried it, but I also hate what it does to people.
3: You hate it, but you've never tried it.
8: I mean, I hate what it does to people. And I also hate it when 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 your dog eats it and gets high.
3: (laughs) We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Joining me now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, welcome back. Guy, great to be with you. Well, just last week, we were talking about this investigation being facilitated by and undertaken by John Durham. One of the spokes of that investigation was a prosecution of Igor Danchenko. And yesterday, while we were on the air, the news broke that the jury came back in that trial. And just like the jury did in the Sussman false statements case, it was a not guilty verdict across the board against Danchenko, Quickly, for those who might be lost in the weeds here, remind us who he was. I know we just talked about it. And then your analysis on the significance of another acquittal in this context.
4: Yeah, Danchenko guy was the primary subsource, as he's been described, of the infamous Steele dossier, which is this compilation of uh, anti-Trump information, mainly uh, rumor and innuendo tying Trump to Russia and the and the Kremlin, uh, which was really commissioned by the Clinton campaign in 2016. Danchenko was the main guy that uh, Steele was relying on for information. Uh, the case that was brought against him was a weak case, um, and the significance of it is on the upside for Durham, Uh, He did use the case effectively as a vehicle for getting a lot of information out into the public domain about FBI misconduct. I think the downside is that this acquittal, in conjunction with the last acquittal, when in the other case he brought against a Democratic lawyer named Michael Sussman a few months ago, those two things together will be used as ammunition uh, by critics of the investigation to say that his final report, which he gets to write as a special counsel, uh, ought to be dismissed because the acquittals show that when he makes allegations, he can't back them up.
3: And on that exact point, I saw a round of virtual high-fiving yesterday from people on the left saying, see, this is all a big story. This is a fairy tale on the right. They've been counting on Durham to secure not just indictments, but ...convictions and all this sort of thing, and now Durham is 0 for 2, so there was really nothing to this. And I saw one MSNBC contributor specifically say, Durham has allowed himself to become effectively a hatchet man for Trump, and his entire life's work and reputation is now gone because he's been carrying water for this conspiracy theory. I think that is grotesquely unfair. This is someone who is extremely well-respected, was highly regarded and recommended by the state's two Democratic senators—he's from Connecticut— they spoke very highly of him to say that he has been following the evidence and because he's seeding certain information out into the public, suddenly he's what had a huge transformation and he's a partisan hack in the tank for Trump. I think that that is really, really unjust way to frame this. And yet they are clearly telegraphing that the acquittals in their mind are a victory politically and the last piece of the puzzle is trashing Durham's reputation when that report comes out. Does that sound about right to you?
4: Yeah, that it, it does, and it's it's a very peculiar way to come at it, given uh, the fact that they, you know, when when Mueller uh, dumped a two-volume report with 400 pages of information that he accumulated in his investigation, but no charges against Trump. I don't remember Democrats. Uh, saying that what Mueller did was utterly unimportant. In fact, uh, you know, there were lengthy hearings in the House about whether um, he ought to be uh, uh, impeached over the uh, the volume that was about obstruction of justice. Um, so, you know, I, I just think, you know, the sad fact here, Guy, is we we seem to have, maybe this goes back to the Clinton years, but we seem to think that our standard now for, Uh, Whether there's been abuse of government power or problems with government officials is whether you can successfully indict them or not, which is really not what the standard is supposed to be. And there's a lot of things that are in the nature of abuse of political power that simply are not prosecutable as crimes. That doesn't mean that there hasn't been profound abuse of political and and governmental power.
3: Well, then the question becomes – If there was serious abuse of power, which it seems to me there was in this case, whether it was criminal or not, unclear. Obviously, some D.C. liberal juries have decided no. In these two cases, crimes were not committed, and part of it is because you'd have to believe within this scheme of the prosecution that the FBI was just this doe in the woods, been duped by these nefarious actors as opposed to at least on some level in on the corruption or in on this whole Scheme. I think that that is a point you've made repeatedly, and I think the average listener might listen to this and take in this conversation and start to process what you're saying and ask themselves if something as bad as a dreamed-up narrative about a collusion with a hostile foreign government to win a presidential election, if that can just be created effectively out of whole cloth and then used and lorded over a president and a presidency for years – to try to discredit and distract that administration, and then it all comes to light that there was no basis for that whole strain of narrative that was dominant in our media for years, and then no one really gets held accountable, I think you might see a lot of people feel like the system is broken and maybe not worth defending anymore. It just seems very damaging to faith in our institutions, which is ironic given all the caterwauling we've heard from the other side, about institutions and the faith therein in recent years.
4: Yeah, I I think that's right. And, you know, Guy, if you ask Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, about that uh, and put it to him just the way that you just put it to me, I think what he would tell you is that nobody who was in a decision-making position of authority in connection with the Russiagate investigation is still in his job. Now, that doesn't feel like it's accountability to people. I I, I certainly get that. It's not like being convicted in a trial. Um, But the FBI and the Justice Department have certainly taken the position that they had some really bad actors as attested not only by what Durham has uncovered but by voluminous investigations that were done by the Justice Department uh, inspector general. Right, Horowitz. And people have been fired and moved out of their positions.
3: Yeah, Strzok is gone. Others are gone. You also see it, you know, Andrew McCabe, for example, lying multiple times under penalty of perjury. And he gets to sort of move on from his career and was able to fight and get his pension back and all this sort of thing. It, it just kind of feels like, with indictments flying and sentences being handed down for Trump cronies, it, it just doesn't always at least feel or appear like the justice system is politically blind and applied evenly. both sides of the political aisle. That is at least a perception that I think is widely held on the right these days. And I think there's something to it. And I don't know what the solution is.
4: Yeah, well, I I think, um, you know, number one, uh, Durham has proved important information about abuses of the FBI's authority, particularly its national security authority. And what you do about it if you want it to change is consideration has to be given to changing their mission. Personally, I believe the uh, national security foreign counterintelligence mission ought to be taken away from the FBI. I think it's undermined uh, them as an institution, as a police organization, because foreign counterintelligence is just a very different kind of work than law enforcement work. And the, the combination of the two in the last uh, you know two to three decades has not been good for the FBI. And then the other thing I think has to happen, Guy, is there has to be searching congressional inquiry into the performance of the FBI. And you have to address this in the only language they understand, which is you slash their budget if they misbehave and you remove bad actors. If you don't do that, then you're just going to have the same thing happen again and yeah, again. Yeah, it
3: seems to me that perhaps the recipe here would be a Republican majority in the House, at least the House, where they can control something like the Oversight Committee, for instance and conduct hearings into these types of things, and then a probing and detailed summary report by John Durham as a roadmap for those investigations. That combination might bear fruit in terms of just shining a light where it needs to be shined, and whether that feels like accountability, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Andy, in the meantime, I want to play for you a soundbite. This is a new ad running in Texas. Greg Abbott hitting Beto O'Rourke, his opponent in the governor's race, On the issue of crime, which is an area where Republicans have really been on offense against the Democrats. They're portraying the Democratic Party as overall indulgent of crime, soft on criminals. And here's a a tough, tough TV commercial from Team Abbott in Cut 35.
7: It's a parent's worst nightmare. My son Diego was murdered. The county released the gunman on bond. He violated it 37 times, then shot another person. Why did the county even let my son's murderer out of jail? Beto O'Rourke favors easy bail. Just release criminals back on the streets. That's the same policy to let my son's killer run free. If Beto O'Rourke is elected governor, there'll be more violence and more victims.
3: Meanwhile, here on the East Coast, I'm doing the show from New York City. Some polling in the last few days showing the gubernatorial race between the incumbent Kathy Hochul and the Republican Lee Zeldin really tightening, whether you think it's eight or ten points, or four to six points. We've seen some data in both of those ranges. It is not shaping up to be the huge 20, 30-point blowout that a lot of people were expecting in a state this blue. And the data, the numbers suggest crime is a very big factor at play here, Andy. Just your read on this issue as it affects the elections nationally. And if you want to weigh in on the New York race specifically, feel free.
4: Well, I think, Guy, that... You know, it's been a long time since crime was a major issue in political campaigns like it is uh, in, in this round. Um, you know, we had a, a period of almost a generation, really, if you go from the 90s to the, to, you know, 2015, 2016, where we had record low crime and it kind of receded as an issue of importance. Now it's a, an issue when crime is an issue. It's like the major thing other than possibly inflation that people um, most vote on. And there's a history in this country of uh, even uh, perceived blue states turning to Republicans in times of high crime. You know, in the years that you were talking about, not only was George Pataki a Republican for a very long time, the governor of New York, but they elected Rudy Giuliani uh, as mayor of New York City, which, was, you know, at the time was uh, rivaled San Francisco probably is the the bluest city in the country. So, you know, President Reagan ran on crime. President Nixon ran on crime. There's a long history to it. I, I think we're a little bit rusty because it hasn't been an issue in a while, but it certainly is one here. And Zeldin could win. Um, it's not saying he will, but, you know, New York City uh, is is much more left-leaning than the rest of the state is, and depending on on turnout, he could win.
3: And I think more concerning for national Democrats, let's say Hochul is able to win and maintain the governorship, let's call it by eight or nine points. If she only wins by that margin in a state like this in New York, you look at the half dozen or more, maybe six or seven congressional races that are considered to be closer toss-ups, if she's only carrying the state statewide by you know single digits— That probably doesn't bode well for Democrats in very tough races in some of these congressional contests.
4: Yeah, I I think that's right, Guy. You know, just going back to the last elections that we had uh, here in New Jersey, uh, shockingly, uh, a Republican candidate named Citarelli nearly knocked off the incumbent governor here. And that was so close. It was a couple of days before anyone really knew what the final result was. If you knew just that as a bellwether, you knew it would have been a good night for uh, Republicans. And at least right now, it seems to be teeing up that way.
3: Very quickly, Andy, I saw you wrote a piece at National Review on the corner about California. You called it the California Exodus. Briefly summarize that in the time we have left, if you would.
4: Yeah, this whole this idea that, uh, you know, they have a proposition uh, that. Uh, you know, we're basically uh, they're trying to squeeze uh, medical providers into uh, unionizing. And what they're basically saying is, if you know, if the proposition causes them to lose money, uh, such as they would go out of business, that the state could order them not to go out of business. So in California, they're now taking the position that they can tell private companies you can't go out of business, mm-hmm. even if you're losing a lot of money. So if you you wonder why. Uh, people are leaving California in droves, or if we get to 2024 and the question is, do you want the country to look like California or look like Florida? uh, I think there's a tough case for California there.
3: Yeah, it's just this Frankenstein monster as they try to build progressivism in a laboratory, and it looks like California, and a lot of voters there are saying, as they take a glance around left and right, nah, not so much, we're out of here. And amazingly, the person running that state increasingly into the ground, wants a job promotion, it seems, and wants to be president of the United States. And perhaps your reference to 2024 will come to pass. We'll be watching, obviously, Andy McCarthy, our guest, Fox News contributor, longtime federal prosecutor. Andy, as always, we appreciate it.
4: Thanks so much, Guy.
3: The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the guy Benson Shaw. glad you're here. Thanks for listening. In the last few days, a number of Democrats have been asked really tough questions, stumpers on the Inflation Reduction Act, such as why hasn't inflation been reduced? When will inflation be reduced by the Inflation Reduction Act? And the answers have varied from, oh, well, maybe next year... It's hard to say some of this stuff is a lag time. I don't have a timeline for you, et cetera. They don't have a good answer because there isn't a good answer. And calling that bill the Inflation Reduction Act was foolish. It was a political band-aid to a gaping wound that they had helped cause, and it wasn't really fooling anyone. Well, this was a less pointed question asked of Vice President Kamala Harris at an event Listen to this hardball that gets slung at the vice president. And then her response, remember, the point of this bill supposedly is reducing inflation, cut 34.
7: What are some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, this, this amazing new law that you are most excited about?
8: So, I mean, so much. So much I'm, one of the things that I'm very excited about is what we have been doing in terms of electric vehicles. Um, and I, I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses.
3: <laughs> Enough. I really do, and we're. I, I, I really do. I'm sure you do. She's talking about electric school buses the way that she normally talks about Venn diagrams, so you can tell she's very excited. And of course, she starts to chuckle because nothing is more hilarious than an electric school bus. What this has to do with reducing inflation, I have no idea. The question, what's your favorite thing about the Inflation Reduction Act? She's like, oh, so many, so many things. And she lands on electric school buses because that's what comes to mind when you think about bringing inflation down, right? Although I feel like given the way she talks to her audiences a lot of the time, perhaps Kamala Harris might lead the entire audience in a song. The wheels on the bus go
7: (laughs) round and round. The wheels on the bus go <laughs> all through the town.
3: Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Bill Malugin joins us from the border when we return. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad you've tuned in. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand every single day. We do recommend that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts if you cannot listen live as we air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. On social media, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at GuyBensonShow. We have some bonus content. ...online, on social from time to time. So please do check that out. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. hour, Eastern Time on the Fox News channel. I would tell you what to expect, but I don't know what to expect. You never really do. Going into the lair of Greg Gutfeld, whom we had on the show just yesterday here in studio. So set your DVRs or stay up late with us this evening. This hour sponsored by the Finnish long drink. Delicious. In fact, at a cocktail party we were at last night, more on that later... Someone told me that because of our sponsorship here, he tried the long drink and he's all in. He said he likes the black can the best. The stronger drink, the longer drink. It's delicious. Always drink responsibly, of course. 21 plus only. Check out where they're sold near you, that expanding map, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now from the border, Eagle Pass, Texas, is our colleague Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News. And Bill, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Guy. Always a pleasure to join you.
3: I want to start with this story out of El Paso, Texas. This was reported by the New York Post. They had information that the city council there is alleging, at least members of it, that the mayor was under pressure from the Biden administration not to declare a state of emergency over the border. That has been now alleged multiple times, including in public, against the mayor and against that city's leadership. The mayor now pushing back, giving some interviews, saying, well, yes, the administration did ask him not to declare a state of emergency, but he agreed with them on the merits that it wasn't necessary. And so he didn't. He didn't bow to pressure. The whole thing very much smells like politics, though, and an administration that is much more focused on political optics and limiting political fallout than actually handling the substance of the problem. Bill, what are you hearing about this El Paso kerfuffle?
1: Well, the thing that jumps, about, jumps out to me about El Paso is the federal government is reimbursing them for everything that they're doing. And that's something that the mayor has pointed out is, hey, we really appreciate all this help that we're getting from the federal government. So I don't know if most people know this, but El Paso, run by Democrats, has bust more than 11,000 migrants to New York City. Governor Abbott has only done about 3,300. So El Paso has done more than triple what Governor Abbott is doing. But they've taken no criticism, and they're being reimbursed for it while the state of Texas is paying for its own buses. So it kind of makes you wonder a little bit. Well, hang
3: on, Bill. Whoa, 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 because I need to understand this. If you've got Greg Abbott sending a couple of thousand of these migrants to various blue jurisdictions, sanctuary cities, and he's being accused of human trafficking – that was a talking point we heard for a while – but the Democratic city of El Paso, Texas – is doing triple that number, and they're getting paid back by the people accusing Abbott of human trafficking, is that not also human trafficking, or does that definition have no meaning in this context?
1: One would wonder that, right? it's, It's truly bizarre. And yeah, it was actually one of the El Paso City Council members, Claudia Rodriguez, She's the one who said that Mayor Oscar Leeser of El Paso told her in a private phone conversation that the White House has asked me not to declare a state of emergency. Apparently, several of the council members were pushing him to do so uh, because they wanted to open it up to get more funding. I mean, I'm not going to lie. El Paso has absolutely been overrun in recent weeks. Uh, in recent days, they were getting more than 2,000 illegal crossings per day. That's more than what we were seeing here in Eagle Pass. It had gotten so bad that there were migrants camped out under highway overpasses. Border Patrol started doing street releases because all the NGOs and shelters were full. So if you go to El Paso, there were you know hundreds of Venezuelan migrants just sleeping out on the city streets. And that is why the city started busting these migrants to New York City. But exactly what you just said, what a difference in reaction, right? You know, El Paso does it and nobody says a word and they get reimbursed by the federal government, a.k.a. you and I, the taxpayer. Governor Abbott does it and he's accused of human trafficking, doing it for politics. It's the worst thing in the world. And he's done a minuscule number to New York City compared to what El Paso has done. So I, I understand that the mayor of El Paso is kind of pushing back against the narrative that the White House didn't ask him to do it. But, you know, it it, it almost makes you beg the question, did he not do it because they were promised they're going to get all this. Federal reimbursement. Well, I mean, that's the
3: that's the obvious Occam's razor response to this, It's twofold. Number one, Abbott and DeSantis and Ducey are getting criticized because they're Republicans and the Democrats don't like Republicans and journalists are mostly Democrats. So they also don't like Republicans. Point one. Point two. It would make sense to your suggestion right there. That the reason that the El Paso leadership chose not to declare a state of emergency was because the administration effectively begged them not to, understanding that that would look problematic, the optics would be bad, the politics would be bad, and there was sort of a handshake done over a phone, which is you don't make our political lives harder by declaring officially an emergency And we will get you federal taxpayer money to help you deal with this problem effectively in emergency without declaring it. You get what you want. We avoid the political headache. That at least seems, let's just say, highly plausible.
1: Highly plausible. And did you see how much it's possibly costing? El Paso Matters, a local media outlet in El Paso, uh, reported that as recently as mid-September, the city of El Paso is spending up to $300,000 every single day for migrant food, shelter, and travel. So that math adds up very quickly, and that is now FEMA, a.k.a. the U.S. taxpayers, putting the bill for that.
3: Yep. And it's like they want to do everything except fix the problem. And they want to do it in such a way that as few people pay attention to their contributions and their responsibility as possible. That very much is what it looks like from the outside as someone who has been watching this pretty carefully here for the better part of two years. You mentioned New York City, Bill. Eric Adams put out this video where he's bragging about how welcoming New York has been to these migrants and how New York is doing it the right way. And it's you know really good and uh, very – compassionate and all of that. Here is what it sounds like. Cut 21.
0: The history of this country has always been tied to welcoming those who are fleeing harm. And that is the spirit of this country. It must be done in an organized way. And I I believe that we will always be responsible as, as New Yorkers to make sure whoever comes here, we're going to do our job. And that's what we have done. I think that New York has been a role model on how to effectively use our infrastructure to address the crisis and make sure we treat people in a humane way. And that's what we have done.
3: And they're showing a bunch of tents and the way that people are being treated and welcome to New York City. First of all, it's important to fact check. There have been millions of people who have entered the country illegally under President Biden, a fraction of whom are actually fleeing harm and have bona fide claims to asylum. I know they want to pretend... That everyone coming here illegally is someone escaping some horrible situation, and they're just an asylum seeker, and we need to respect that. It's true for some of them. It is not true for the vast majority of them, no matter how they try to frame up this debate. And then as I listen to this and I watched the images, it kind of seems like Eric Adams has flip-flopped back to being in favor of sanctuary policies because he was all about sanctuary city, New York City until the consequences of that started to show up at his doorstep. He kind of freaked out at that point point. was talking about how this was a burden. No one asked for this in New York. We're angry. This is too much, and it's a state of emergency. Now he's back to self-congratulation about how New York is doing it the right way. It sounds like he's kind of inviting more of it. I wonder if some migrants might see the video and say, yeah, let's head to New York, and maybe Governor Abbott can fire up more of the buses, because this sounds like an invitation for more now from the mayor of New York City
1: it certainly does. And it wouldn't surprise me if those migrants were possibly enticed by hearing that and seeing the videos. I saw a video on social media yesterday showing the inside of one of these shelters that might be what you were displaying just now, but big, nice TVs, even Xboxes set up. I mean, it's, it's nicer than like some of the hotels that are down here at the border. Um, so the, so these, these migrants, yeah, absolutely. If they know they can get into the U S get free transportation, go to a city of their choice. Hey, they get to stay in a shelter, get a hot meal, watch some TV, play some video games for a little bit. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If you're coming from somewhere else, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and
3: if you're a Republican governor with your resources already completely overwhelmed and stretched, if you've got Eric Adams in New York City saying, hey, come on up, we're great here, look how compassionate and welcoming we are, I mean, that strikes me as, like, come one, come all, get those buses rolling, get those planes flying, and maybe we can have, like, I don't know, a bidding war for illegal immigrants among these blue state jurisdictions and see how the taxpayers of those cities and states react to all of it, because there are probably a lot of taxpayers whose living conditions are a lot worse than what they're seeing in a video like this. And I could imagine for some people that might just rub them the wrong way on this front, Bill. I'm sure you saw this and I have to get your reaction to it. The secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas recently gave an interview where he was again trying to spin the border crisis. It's always a deflection, always a blame shift. The new novel spin that I hadn't heard before is that critics of the border crisis who say that the administration is not enforcing the law and effectively creating an open border situation or certainly not a controlled or closed border situation, the fact that people are calling out the administration in those terms – Unto itself is an advertisement to smugglers and to illegal immigrants and enticing them to come because they're hearing from the critics that the border isn't closed and therefore they think the border isn't closed. It's like he's trying to turn reality on its head and say, no, they're not coming here because of the reality that we've created. They're coming because of the critics of the reality that we've created. I'll give him this. It is definitely novel, it strikes me as shameless, but this is the latest attempt.
1: It was a truly bizarre statement. Essentially, what he's saying is that people pointing out that the border is not secure is the problem. Not that, not the fact that the border isn't secure, right? But this administration, they've always just been concerned about the optics, the optics of what's going on down here. Hence that El Paso story with possibly telling the mayor not to declare a state of emergency, possibly the same thing with what happened with the horse whipping hoax, right? They had 15,000 people under that bridge. They had to find something to divert the media's attention away. And boy, oh boy, did it work like a charm. So this is just more of the same. I mean, he's going to point out the fact that whether it's reporters or critics saying that the border isn't secure, that's the problem. Not the fact that the border isn't secure. And, and Guy, just this morning alone, we've seen more than 700 people cross illegally since the sun came up. But that's not the problem, right? It's the fact that we're doing live shots. Yeah, no, no, us talking
3: about it. Right here, we're the problem, Bill. Noticing the reality and talking about it is the problem. Not the reality and the policies undergirding that reality. I mean, it's just it is a wild, wild gambit rhetorically that he's attempting. And I guess in one of their meetings, this is what they came up with. They were going to try going down this path. I think it is insulting to our collective intelligence. I don't think it will work. And maybe last topic here, Bill, someone who might have slept through that meeting is the Border Patrol chief, Chris Magnus. I'm sure you noticed this Politico story about him a couple days ago. He's getting thrown under the bus by the White House saying that he's disengaged. He's not really focused on CBP operations. He's doing other stuff. He asks questions in meetings that are totally off sort of the deep end, down rabbit holes, and he's often falling asleep or nodding off during meetings. I am not here to say that he's doing a good job. You would know better about his reputation down there among frontline agents and and all that sort of thing. It does strike me as a political hit piece planted by the White House to try to scapegoat some guy who, of course, has some power. But ultimately, he's trying to carry out policies that are being handed down way above his head. I'm open to the argument that he's doing a bad job and he is not fit for the position, but also, I'm not sure any chief of Border Patrol could actually really get his or her arms around this problem so long as the Biden administration policies remain intact.
1: Yeah, and you know what's weird about this is I think this might be one of the only circumstances I'm aware of where the Biden White House and former Trump border officials are in agreement here. My phone blew up when this article came out. Former Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott, former CBP Commissioner Mark Morgan uh, said this article is spot on, as did multiple CBC sources that I have. They described this guy as more of an activist than wanting to do anything on the enforcement side of CBP. He came to briefings, and former Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott tells Fox News he briefed Commissioner Magnus for months, and then sat down with him in a meeting and commissioner Magnus was essentially saying, Oh, what, what, what's that title late thing again? Can you explain that again? Uh, it, it, every, every former board official i talked to said, this guy has no idea what he's doing, and apparently that's what the Biden White House is agreeing to as well. You know, somebody leaked that from within the White House. I'm still kind of wondering who who did that and what the political motivation was behind that. Well, they do this, um, right?
3: They knife their own people sometimes when they're causing a political problem. They see a scapegoating opportunity. Sounds like Magnus probably deserves on some level to be scapegoated, although, again, he's not the one setting policy. But if he's doing such a bad job and falling asleep in all of this stuff, they could fire him. But that hasn't happened because it seems like no one gets fired over there, no matter how badly they
1: fail. Exactly, and they're the ones who hired him. Right? This wasn't a Trump ho- this wasn't a Trump holdover. They're the ones who hired him. He was a former police chief in Tucson, I believe. And the biggest criticism has been he's not engaged and he doesn't know anything about. Uh, Immigration enforcement, essentially, didn't know the difference between Title 42, Title 48, isn't engaged in the job and hasn't been sitting in on the briefings when it comes to what's going on down here at the southern border. But you're absolutely right. No matter what he's doing wrong or if he is or isn't doing the job correctly, the problem comes from above him, right? It's the policy set forth by DHS and by this administration. And that policy began before President Biden was ever even president, when he was on the campaign trail debating, what did he say? And that's what all the migrants heard if I'm elected, we should surge the border. We should surge the border with as many people as possible. And that is exactly what has happened.
3: Bill Malugian, national correspondent here at Fox News, joining us from Eagle Pass, Texas today. Bill, always enjoy it. Thank you very much for your time, as always.
1: Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon.
3: And the Guy Benson Show continues right after this.
1: Guy
2: Benson will be right back.
3: Happy Hour Vibes on the Guy Benson Show. And I was happy yesterday. The Yankees winning Game 5, do or die against Cleveland. 5-1 to one, the final in the Bronx yesterday afternoon. Ending in the early evening and off to the ALCS. Go the Yankees. And it started off actually well with Giancarlo Stanton hitting a three-run bomb in the first inning. They never looked back. So by the skin of their teeth, the Yankees move on. They were down in that series, best of five, two to 2-1. Then they won the last two and advanced. Their prize for that is a flight to Houston to play the Astros, the best team, I think, in the American League. And the Yankees have struggled mightily with the Astros for years especially in the playoffs. So the NLCS already underway in the national league, the Phillies squeaking out a two, nothing win against the San Diego Padres, two teams playing very well in the national league. I am hopeful that the Yankees will win this series against Houston. I am not overly optimistic about it. That ballpark is a house of horrors for the Yankees and they have still a lot of injuries. I'm just not sure they can pull it together and get it done. It would be awesome to get that monkey off their back this season There's certainly a lot of talent on both rosters. Even though I'll be rooting hard for New York, if I had to bet money, I would pick Houston. My brain is telling me Houston in six. My heart is telling me Yankees in seven. Dan, you're a Yankee fan. Are you as jaded as I am?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they hit 182 against the Cleveland Guardians in that entire series is not boding well to go against the
3: hot Astros. I tend to agree, and we'll find out starting tonight, game one, in Houston. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show continues. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Stay tuned.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
3: It's The Happy Hour. It's The Guy Benson Show from New York City. Earlier today here in studio, we welcome back our friend and colleague, Dana Perino, co-host of America's Newsroom, and the Five, both on Fox News Channel. Always great to catch up with Dana. Here's part of that chat. Joining me now here in studio is Dana Perino, co anchor of America's Newsroom, co host of The Five, New York Times bestselling author. <laughs>
8: Everything will be okay.
3: Now in paperback. And let's see, we had Greg here yesterday. We had Jesse Tarloff here yesterday. So now we have like 60% of The Five yeah. in the span of two days here on the show in the studio. It's great to see I gotta you. Gotta
8: get Jesse Waters in here.
3: Uh, I agree. Hear that, Jesse?
8: Yeah, Jesse.
3: I know he's super busy with his two shows, but guess who else has two shows? You. Guess who else has two shows? Greg. Yeah. They they managed to pull it off. I'm just saying. Let's clip that and send it to Jesse. (laughs) Just saying. Okay, Dana, I want to start, before we get into some of these specific races, you just said something right before we came back from break. Just a cautionary word to Republicans and conservative voters. I think there's a lot of triumphalism out there. The polling is certainly looking a lot better, but...
8: I know I've all, basically don't start measuring the drapes yet for your new offices. Um, the the momentum is clearly on the Republican side and for good reason. It's not manufactured. Um, and even the headlines in the mainstream media saying, wow, well, look at this. And I think the New York Times poll was shocking to people the other day where they had women, independent women swinging. They were plus 16 for Democrats in August and in October they're plus 18 for Republicans. That has really focused the mind. That means that people are not just going to vote um, party line necessarily, right? Independents you tend to vote with the with the party that you always go with, and even though you say you're an independent, but in this case it looks like the Republicans are winning them over. And partly is because the other part of that poll showed that on the issues people care about the most, whatever that issue is, the Republicans were winning, Mm -hmm. 44 to 36.
3: I mean, that so
8: I just think that it, one of the things that the Republicans should think about, I'm sure some of them are, is that we can't have everybody believe that the Republicans have this thing in the bag because you don't actually have it in the bag until the votes are counted. Right. And if people think, oh, if Republicans are going to win, I don't have to turn out to vote, then you could be caught short.
3: Right. There's almost like this double edged sword on one hand, on the positive side for the Republicans is sometimes stuff can become sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, okay, so-and-so is going to win. I want to be on the winning side. Things do suck right now. Okay, I'm going to vote Republican too, and there's like a bandwagon effect. But there's this other side that you're warning about, which is if enough people believe that it's a done deal, then they get a little lazy, they don't show up, and then what is expected doesn't just magically materialize. People have to actually go and do the voting.
8: On the other hand, it is also demoralizing if you're a Democrat right now thinking – why should I even turn out if the Republicans are already going to win? And if the headlines and even the mainstream press are saying the Republicans have got the momentum, that could hurt them as well.
3: Let's talk about Georgia for a moment. Okay. We played a soundbite in the last segment from Stacey Abrams on MSNBC this morning. She was asked a question about inflation and why it's a much bigger concern to voters than abortion. She decided to try to tie the two issues together and cut 23
7: Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are. it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out.
3: Dana from this. Worldview, is there anything abortion can't solve?
8: <laughs> right. Uh, the, the answer to uh, inflation is abortion. Kill more babies. Oh. That doesn't really um, bode very well. However, let me tell her that at least she's honest because this is what she thinks and she's not alone. Now, I will mm-hmm. say this. We had a woman on Newsroom the other day, an undecided voter, a uh, reverend, uh, and she said she was liked – she is a pro-life person, but – She doesn't think the Republicans do enough to help women once they decide to have that baby and to help take care of that baby and that she was leaning on towards voting for Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, because she thought that would be he would be more likely to help women like that. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, and people have their own calculus for all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. I saw Eric Erickson, who's a radio host. He's based down in Georgia, pretty plugged in down there. He said what he's hearing from door knockers and then internal polling that he has access to in Georgia that the top lines are basically tied in that race i saw one yesterday that had 46 46 but the undecided seem to be breaking for Herschel Walker. Yep. And you look around and what's happening in the country, it's not that hard to understand why, especially if you've got someone like Stacey Abrams out there saying things like this and people say, mm-hmm. Ooh, that I'm not
8: like that's your solution. I'm not for that.
3: <laughs> right. And then the Republican ticket starts to look perhaps more mm-hmm. attractive. There was another poll that I referenced in the last hour out of Pennsylvania, Dana, where you've got this really interesting Senate race, Dr. Oz, John Fetterman. And Fetterman had the you know 11-point lead or whatever it was over the summer. I never believed that. But Oz was behind, and he is just chip, chip, chipping away. AARP out yesterday has it a two-point race, virtual tie. And the write-up said the undecideds in the pool skew Republican. Yeah. So the question is, do those people come home, quote-unquote? And if they do and some of these independents start tipping and there's enough ticket splitting, I mean, Oz can win this thing, I think.
8: Yes, I, I've always thought that he could.
3: My full interview with Dana Perino, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show in its entirety, every day on demand for free when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, Foxnewspodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last night, there was an event here at Fox, a nice little cocktail party. I spoke. It was very fun. The team was here. Elements of the team went out after the party, apparently. And someone partied until the very end of the night. I'll let you guess who that was. And we'll ask this person all about it when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
3: Home stretch on this Wednesday from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, sharp. Fox News Channel, along with that whole crew. Looking forward to it. So last night here at Fox, we had a fun little event for Fox News Radio, Fox News Audio. America is listening. And some of our partners from around the country, really all sorts of different organizations and groups that partner with us in various capacities, were all invited to the 12th floor here at Fox News headquarters, Studio J, which is this beautiful studio where America's Newsroom originates, Cudlow on Fox Business, that's Hannity's studio as well. It's a really nice place. So, in fact, I did Cudlow's show yesterday. During our show, we taped a little bit. I went down there, did some live TV, and within an hour and a half, they had transformed this space into New York's hottest club. It had everything sushi. Open bar, microphones, YY. I mean, it had everything. And it was fun. They had music playing. They had the beverages flowing past our d'oeuvres. It was fancy. It was a little bit glamorous, I have to say. And it was really the power of the Fox brand. All of the graphics were looking great. They had lowered the lights. It was just a spectacularly executed event. Our boss... John Sylvester said a few words. They played a sizzle reel up on this giant screen about all the offerings of Fox News Audio. And we had a little cameo appearance in that montage. Very well produced. Then Brian Kilmeade said a couple things. He was the first speaker. Then he handed the microphone off to me. I talked a little bit about the show and my background here at Fox. And then it was on to Jimmy Fallon, who did some stand-up comedy with some very interesting material. There were times that I was covering my face physically, laughing, but covering my face while laughing. And then it was back to the drinking and the eating and the carousing and all of that. So fabulous event, excellent, A-plus, tip of the cap to everyone who was a part of it and really organized it. I think we put a very strong foot forward for the Fox News Audio brand, proud to be a part of it. Our whole team was there. We took some photos. There was a photographer, a red carpet, step and repeat. It was cool. I have to admit, I hadn't gone to the gym all day. I'd been up early, traveling. I really wanted to sweat it out. So I did not eat or drink at the party. And there was a lot of good stuff, and it was really hard for me to restrain myself. But I did. And then when it was over and sort of petering out, and they needed, I think, the studio back for another show, I went and checked into my hotel for the first time, went to the gym, and then met a friend for a very quick dinner What I didn't realize was the rest of the team, at least parts of the rest of our team here at the show, they were going out for some after festivities, festivities, if you will. And you can guess who is leading the charge on this one, producer Christine. I know Wyatt was along for the ride. Dan, did you go or did you call it a night? I called it a night. I I was... Pressured into it by
2: a certain person you're about to talk about, but I I decided to go home.
3: All right, so you went home. I went to the hotel, went to the gym, had dinner, and went to sleep because I was tired. Apparently, the party continued for hours, like four hours-ish after the official event ended. And I got a sense that things might be still flowing by some of the text messages I was getting in the group chat from producer Christine, including one of her and a giant oversized pretzel that she was eating. She was very proud of that. I was like, okay, they're still out. They're still having fun. I started to get bits and pieces of the story today. Apparently, there was a crew out for quite a long time. Now, Christine is angry that we're talking about this. She said she won't participate in the conversation. She is boycotting. Today's home stretch because she doesn't want to talk about what she did last night, which is fair. She might not remember because apparently she didn't remember several things that happened. Wyatt, you were part of this after party for a while. What happened?
5: Um, Guy, we just we just went out for a few drinks. It was just uh, a normal happy hour. We it, it wasn't an intervention like I did promise last week. We were going to have the intervention about the vacuums, but yeah, this was just tomorrow. yeah. <laughs> this was just a, a good old just. Have a drink with, with some colleagues. colleagues. Yep. Yeah. And
3: there were other people from this floor and this department all out. Uh, did you have an alcoholic beverage or two, Wyatt? I may have had one or two, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're 22, right? Yes. Okay. And Christine is apparently wanting to get in on this, but no, she's boycotting. She's saying that Wyatt had two whole drinks. Wyatt, you also said that Christine tried a new alcoholic beverage this time because you had convinced her recently to try margaritas. Because she thought she hated them, turns out she really doesn't. What did you swindle her into trying this time?
5: Yeah, it's actually kind of amazing. Every time I come to New York, I get you to try a new new alcoholic beverage. But we what,
3: what an influence! It's like <laughs> it's going the other way. You're getting her, although she's not hard to persuade. You're like, here's some booze. She's like, okay, glug.
5: Yeah, I got her to try a, which is one of my favorite drinks, is a uh, a dirty uh, martini. Okay. So and and she you Christine you you enjoyed it she was enjoyed it, it
3: vodka or was it gin it was vodka yeah yes. that would have been my guess so then you decided to peel off around what time
5: I left around ten because I wanted to get the one of the last trains back to New Jersey so I didn't I didn't stay too too late uh huh
3: now was she calling it quits yet or did she
5: keep going all I know is that Christine was still there when I left that's all I know mm, well you
3: know more than that because there were apparently phone calls. What happened with these phone calls?
5: I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what I'm allowed to say, what I'm not allowed to say. Oh, you're allowed to tell the truth.
3: That's what we do on this show. You got phone calls from Christine around
5: what time? Maybe like midnight, uh-huh. a little earlier than that. She probably. was
3: checking in on you, she said. Wanted to make sure you were okay.
5: I mean, it is a long train ride back from the city to, to where I'm at in Jersey, so I, I could see it that way. A, a
3: second phone call, was that necessary at midnight? Just,
5: Making sure everyone's okay. Yeah,
3: just like very, very responsible. The only thing that's interesting about these very responsible motherly phone calls from producer Christine to YY is when this came up at our meeting today, Christine did not remember that these phone calls happened. So, yeah. The other thing is, as she's boycotting, so she can't respond to any of this, but today, what did you say here on the rundown? A burnt cookie is what she's calling herself, a burnt cookie. It seems like maybe the way that you normally put yourself together, today might have been a rough morning. Is just the sense that I'm getting from from all of this. You were also very upset. Christine was very upset. I posted on my Instagram, my personal Instagram. You can follow us on social here at the show, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I always mention that. I'll plug my own Instagram and Twitter. It's the same handle, at Guy P. Benson. And Wyatt took a photo of me giving some of the remarks last night, so I posted that. Then you can swipe over to see another one of the four of us. We're hanging out. We all look very happy. I think it's a great photo. Christine thinks it's a terrible photo. I don't. I think it's a good photo of her. She thinks she looks, quote, wasted, which I disagree. And also, even if that's true, can one really differentiate between Christine wasted or not? I mean, who's to say? Many people are saying, I think it's a very good photo. She was objecting to this photo, apparently, but I think it was perfectly fine. And I think things kind of just went downhill from there over the course of the evening. And eventually, Christina, did you, am I allowed to ask questions of you or is your boycott over?
9: It's over because ah. it was a terrible, terrible picture no, of me. No. So don't go look at that picture and think that's what you know cookies all
3: about people should go to at guy P. Benson on Instagram and look for themselves at I think a very good photo of the whole team you got Dan on the right, then Wyatt with his impish little smirk standing right next to me, then yours truly, towering over Wyatt and Christine, and Dan was sort of like almost sorority squatting, so he looks shorter than he is and then and then producer Christine looking extremely happy and not yet overserved. That came later. That came later. I think it's a good photo. You said this is a terrible photo. This is the worst photo of me. And I very helpfully disproved that quickly, didn't I?
9: Yeah. yeah. put another photo in there and said, this is actually a really bad photo of you. Yeah.
3: Well, not for the world to see, just for the team to see. Oh, I, thank you. I texted it to our team being like, see, this is much worse. Am I, I, am I wrong?
9: It, it was a bad picture. And our <laughs> boss of, what, even what, agreed.
3: Yeah, Maria. We showed it to Maria today. And she's like, oh, yeah, that is a much worse picture. And she, she was confused why you were upset about the photo at Guy P Benson on Instagram. You can see of our little our little uh, radio family here.
9: It's just it wasn't a great picture. I and think
3: it was. How bad is your headache today?
9: You know what the scary thing is? I woke up feeling fine, just like tired.
3: Really? Yeah. How many drinks do you think you had over the course of? The I know evening?
9: what I had. I don't. I
3: know. I you really I did you were, not black out. You were calling. Wyatt, twice, and you don't remember the phone calls, but you were counting drinks scrupulously?
9: I had a Cosmo. Mm-hmm. I had a dirty- Did you m- drink
3: at the party here?
9: Oh, right. That doesn't count. Yes, it
3: does count. Of course it does. That
9: was just like, I was like little, just a little wine. That just like didn't
3: count. All right, so let's call that two. Yeah. Two glasses of wine, then a Cosmo. Uh-huh. Okay.
9: Then a dirty martini. Okay. Oh, and then a Blue Moon. Okay. Oh, no, two blue moons. All right. And a lemon drop shot?
3: One, two, three, four, four. five, six, seven is what I'm counting. And I'm going to round up to ten. So it's ten drinks, a few forgotten phone calls, and then a little weariness but no hangover this morning from producer Christine. And that is how we party here at the Guy Benson Show. Me at the gym, Dan asleep, Wyatt training home and Christine dancing on bars at midnight. No,
9: no, no, no. I was not dancing on any bars. No, I'm a 41 year old woman.
3: Yeah, you don't want to inflame your bum hip. Right. That could be the boycott is back just in time because we're out of time. It's the Guy Benson Show on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio, also outnumbered tomorrow for me on the couch, noon Eastern FNC, just a heads up there. Back here, same time, same place on the radio side. We will talk to you
1: then. Have a good night. I'm in trouble.